All right, so we're going to be talking about heaven. Um, I'm excited about this, you know, because uh, when it comes to heaven, we all have different reasons that it matters to us. We all have different reasons um, that we've thought about it, different reasons that we've tried not to think about it. It's something that matters to everyone in some way. And the way that it matters to us is so directly connected to who we are and things we've experienced, the things that we've felt. And so when it comes to heaven, there is no one uh, who exists who doesn't have some kind of a personal feeling or, or thought or emotion attached to heaven. And so in this series, it's going to be fun again, but you know, my hope is that in the scriptures that we will really begin to, to grab a hold of the picture that God gives us of this place that is to be a hope for us. Hope, you know, as the Bible tells us, is this ability to, to find expectation and to attach emotions and thoughts and feelings to something that we have not seen yet. But in the glimpses of what we do see now, hope provides comfort and purpose and understanding. And so what happens in the Scriptures, we do not have a clear picture, if you would, of everything about heaven. But what we have is, is enough glimpses of what it will be like that it's enough to give us expectation, and that expectation is a good expectation, which we call hope. You guys ready? If you guys have your Bibles, let's jump into it. Let's go to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 31. Now, when we're talking about heaven, we have to understand this, okay? Most of us get heaven wrong because we start in the wrong place in the story. So we understand that, you know, the story of God, the story of the world, it starts in Genesis. And when I say story, please don't think that I'm trying to uh, belittle Scripture. What I'm trying to say is story is the way that we learn to understand reality. It's through when we're children, we, we learn stories. And it's not the actual what's happening in the story that means so much to us as kids, but stories allow us to understand the world around us. It's a way for us to connect to what's real in a way that is easier for us to grasp. And so, uh, in the Bible, what helps so much whenever we step back from the Scriptures and we look at the overarching story, it helps us to, to grasp a reality that is hard for us to see. Because the truth is, if, if, you know, if all of human history is a book, we're somewhere at the back, but there's still many pages before us and there's many pages after us. It's hard for us to get a feel for what's going on when we're right in the middle of the story. And so, what Genesis does for us is it allows us to step back from the place where we are in the book and go all the way back to chapter 1. If you guys like to read books, you'll see that, you know, in stories, the first chapter, it always sets the stage for the last chapter, okay? Uh, the author will always give you an image and a hint about where the story's going to end by where it begins. And what happens with us with heaven is often we misunderstand how the story begins, so, whenever we talk about the Garden of Eden, we talk about how God created all these different things. He creates this, this creation. He puts things in this creation. And then he puts an image of himself in creation. And that image of himself is us. And so, after six days, we come to our verse here in chapter 1, verse 31. And he says this about it. He, he sits back after all his work, and God says, God saw all that he had made, and it was what? Very good. Excuse you, it's just saying good, okay? We're talking about us, by the way, okay? We're talking about us and everything around us, okay? So, so he makes all this, 
and he steps back and he says, that's terrible. And he takes it and he crumples it up and he throws it in the trash can. Is that what we read? No. He puts all this effort and his energy and creativity and love and affection and, and desire and he puts it into this creation and he makes it and he steps back and says, very good. What happens with the reason most of us have the wrong picture of, of heaven is because we start with the idea that everything around us is bad. And what happens with this is when the story begins for us and we understand that everything around us is bad, then the Bible and God and Jesus become the story of how God's going to pull us out of this bad place and take us to a better place. Does that sound familiar? Come on now. Now remember, here's what we do, okay? Since I really care about us understanding it, because the whole point of this is for all of us to see what Jesus is giving us so it can encourage us. So what I'm going to do is I'll say, do you see it? And if you see it, say, see it. So, most of us have been taught that everything around us is what? Bad. So the gospel is about how Jesus is coming to pull us out, to rescue us away, right? It's an evacuation. Think about it, right? Okay, it's an evacuation. This ship is sinking and we need to get off this ship right now because it's just going down the toilet. We see it swirling down the toilet and, and so like we turn on the news and things get worse and worse and worse. And so God's going to take this thing, he's going to crumple it up and toss it in the basket and start over. But if we're lucky, we get to be plucked out of this place and taken to a better place that he's not going to throw in the trash can. Evacuation. Do you see it? But what happens if God actually likes this place? What happens if God doesn't actually want to throw this place away? What happens if the place you call home is a place that he actually has affection for? Maybe he's not coming to throw it away. Maybe he's coming to heal the word in scriptures is to reconcile it, to make all things right. The word reconcile has these different meanings. Uh, the one meaning is justice, meaning to make all the things the way that they should be. And the other understanding of to reconcile means to bring things that were far away and to bring them together. And so in the scriptures, to reconcile us and creation, it's all because of the fact that whatever happened in the garden, the sin and the rebellion, it caused things to be out of order. Things are, are not the way they're supposed to be. There's something wrong. There's a lack of justice. Things aren't right. And because things aren't right, there's a separation. There's a distance. And so in Jesus, He isn't sending Jesus to pluck us out of the earth before He destroys it. He's sending Jesus to reconcile us and all creation. And He has this word for it. New creation. And he says, and, and so he's reconciled all things. All things being all things. He's reconciled us out of it so that he can throw it, the rest of it away. But then there's that all word in there, right? So here's the idea. Is that in Jesus, he's not just reconciling us back to God. In Jesus, all of the universe, all of matter and energy, all of the laws of, of reality, all of these things are being made right in Him. And in Jesus, because they're being right in Him, now these two things can be brought back together in Him. And so in Jesus, all things are brought back together. You see it? All right. It's a good way to start, amen. 
So, if we get the creation story right, if we get the story right, if we start in the right place, and if when we look at the garden, we see good, not bad, then it helps us understand the end. And so, the first place we have to find heaven, we have to find heaven in the garden. But the next place that we have to find heaven is we have to find heaven in the story. If you guys have your Bibles, go to uh, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Rather lengthy, but stay with me. I hope you'll see it. So God comes and makes covenant with Abraham. And he talks about how through his covenant, through his relationship with Abraham, he's going to, to bless the entire world through this man. And the idea is that God is coming to, to reconcile, to make things right again on the earth, to fix what happened in the garden through Abraham and through his family, through Israel. And of course, as we know in scriptures, it just doesn't work. They, they're not faithful to God. They're not able to hold up their end of the bargain. And so what, what God does is he has these promises. He, he keeps to his promise, and he's going to fix everything through Israel, through the covenant with Abraham. But what he does is he comes down and does it himself. And so he comes down in the form of Jesus, the Messiah. And he comes down to, to right these wrongs. But in the Old Testament, we see this intention of God to make everything right. And the prophet Isaiah here in chapter 65 is a beautiful picture. If you guys just want to read with me, it's going to take us a while. But it's a beautiful thing if you just see it. Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Just pause right there. Look at what kind of a God we have. He's talking about this cosmic thing about, you know, he's going he's gonna to remake the, 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 the heavens and the earth. It's this huge picture, but he brings it right down to the personal level. He says, and the reason I'm doing all this isn't just because of eternity and time and space and planets and stars. It's because of, and then he hits this, this detail, because never again am I willing to see a child only live for a breath. I'm going to make all things right. Do you see that? Or an old man who, who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who, who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as, as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. If this imagery starts to get a little bit odd for us, but just think about this. Basically what he's saying is that all things will be made right. There will be no kind of disharmony in the world whenever the Messiah comes and makes things right. So... There will not be death or violence of any kind. So even things in nature that are normal right now in this world, it's normal for a lion to not eat straw. 
<laughs> right? Okay, it's normal for a lion to eat flesh. But even in that death, there's something, even though it's normal for this world, there's something about the shedding of blood and of life being taken, of life ending, that's just not quite right. And so in this place, there will be no death or violence or loss of any kind. Do you see it? And so what happens here, especially in the Old Testament, we see the plan of God for the entire world. From the covenant with Abraham through the uh, Davidic promises, the promises he makes to David, fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus, God's plan was to fully restore his people and this place. Are you guys starting to see how the gospel is kind of fitting into this cosmic plan that God had? It's not just about your salvation. It's about the salvation of everything. It's about bringing everything into the safe covering where God is covering and protecting and making everything right. The word justice is, is a word that we bring to this, this story, but it, it's one of the, the best understandings that we can have of what God is doing. He's making it to where everything is right. Everything is right. All right. Here we go. Now, if we have to find heaven in the garden and we have to find heaven in the story, we also have to find heaven in Jesus. And, you know, we're not going to unpack all of this today. Uh, I'll summarize it with this. Basically, everything that we know about the life to come, we learn in the resurrected body of Jesus. That is a loaded statement, which we're going to open up later on in the series, okay? But basically, everything that we know about what heaven will be like, we learn in the body of Jesus that rose from the dead three days after the cross. About this body who comes back, he is in essence the first picture, the first glimpse that we have of what eternity will look like. And what's so funny about Jesus is uh, John chapter 24, the first thing he does, he comes back and his disciples are going, it's you, it's you. And he goes, do you have any food to eat? Let that sink in for you. Do you have any food to eat? His resurrected heavenly body, he's walking through walls, he's, you know, teleporting around the world, and then he just shows up, he's like, man, I'm hungry, all that teleporting and walking through walls. Do you have any fish? And he eats fish. Okay. Amen? I mean, come on. I mean, is, I guess you guys don't like food the way I like food. I read that and I was like, amen. Thank you, Jesus. I can be excited about heaven. Okay. You guys are too serious this morning. Come on. All right, here we go. Talk about heaven, Jesus. All right, so we have to find heaven in Jesus. And so what happens is we find heaven in this, the resurrected body. The resurrected body of Jesus reveals a familiar future of touch, taste, smell, sight, sound, and experience. Whatever our future is, it is to be explored in a robust bodily experience. I use the word robust. Did you like that? Okay. Here's the understanding, okay? When you break it down in the Greek, it's understanding this thing where Jesus comes back. In essence, Jesus is more human than we are now. It's not that he's less bodily. It's not that he's, he, he doesn't come back as the spirit thing. He comes back as this body. And this body is similar because like when they see him, they, you know, they've, they had, they've had all these different ideas for who he is. The, the first time he shows up to them, they're not really sure if, if it's Jesus or not. And so this body is familiar. It looks like a body. And then, of course, we see in, in the Gospel of John, this body can be touched. We see Thomas. He's over here just like poking his finger in Jesus' side. Oh, look, it is you, Jesus. I mean, it can be touched, right? 
we have to step back and understand something too. We have to understand that the, the picture of heaven that most of us hold in this room today is more like what in the first century the Apostle Paul was fighting against this movement called Gnosticism. And what this was was this attempt to take the gospel of Jesus and to believe that what Jesus was really trying to teach was that the sons of God would be able to learn that everything in this world was fallen and weak. And that the sons of light, as they called them, would find this understanding and they would live on this earth not caring about anything tangible. So anything that's fleshly, anything touch, sight, smell, taste, all of that is fallen and to be left behind. And that they would leave this world and exist forever with God in this kind of a spirit state. What's funny about that is this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is fighting against every time in in the epistles where he writes about the resurrection of Jesus' body. This was the cult that Paul was trying to kill, but yet this is exactly what most of us believe the Scriptures are showing us heaven is. When you thought about heaven, I'll just say from my experience, whenever I used to think about heaven, I used to picture myself, yes, some kind of a consciousness, but it's almost like a, a floating spirit jellyfish. Like, you know, it's, it's like, yes, I'm kind of me, like I'm aware of what's going on around me, but I'm kind of just here. I'm not walking, I'm kind of floating or flying or something. I'm not really like touching or tasting or seeing, I'm just kind of here, because I'm just kind of in the presence of God and it all feels good. Come on, don't leave me hanging. Have you, okay, so I googled heaven, all right, and I found hundreds of images of, of blue clouds bright lights, and that's about it. Clouds and light. That's exactly what I used to picture. Myself in this kind of a really bright place, and we're just kind of here. Oh, God's so good. And I just feel it, you know? I'm just feeling it, you know? And somehow, I'm okay with just feeling that God is good for 20 years, 30 years, 10,000 years. We might be singing, we might not be, I'm not sure, but I'm just kind of here. Because... To me, I was taught that eternity was all about us being united with the Spirit God. So our spirits leaving this fallen world. And so our spirits are united with His Spirit because spirits are eternal. And so my spirit and His Spirit are just going to sit there forever and just kind of... I don't even know. Is that hitting home for anybody? I mean, like... It was either that or like harps and babies. I'm not really sure. I mean... Somewhere in between there. Nisa, actually, I talked to her about six years ago about heaven, and she just shocked me. She's like, no, no, you know, in heaven, I always pictured it's going to be like earth, and we're going to be like walking around. And I was like, I mean, who's the theologian in the house now? I was like, oh my goodness. I'm not sure what's going on there. Basically, this idea of this disembodied eternity where we, our true spirits would just leave this world and escape this place and that fire is going to come and destroy this entire world and the rest of it's just us in this nothingness with the Spirit of the Father. This is not the message of the Gospel. This is Greek thought. This is Gnosticism. This is the, how would you put that? The brainchild of Plato. Super you know, intelligent, great thinker, but he, he believed that everything in this world was wasting away, and it was not as real as things that are unseen. 
And so this idea over the centuries creeps into the church. And again, all of a sudden, we have this way of reading all the Scriptures from this angle where everything about the body is bad and we miss everything that's being spoken to us. And it, it didn't really hit me until about a year ago. I was doing some study. And all of a sudden, I realized that in my theology, in my thinking about God, the resurrection didn't mean much to me. I realized that to me, God could have been born and Jesus could have been born. He could have died on the cross. I didn't need him to, re- to be resurrected. I didn't need that. I needed him to die so I wouldn't, be, you know, uh, wouldn't have my sins held against me. I-, I needed him to go to the Father so that he'd take me to the Father in some spiritual place. I didn't understand why he, his body had to be resurrected. I didn't understand why Thomas needed to touch his side. I didn't understand why Jesus needed to eat. I didn't understand why the image of Jesus sitting, physical body, in the throne room with God was important, and why it was important to picture his physical body coming down out of the sky back to me. Why is it important to picture the body of Jesus? Because the body of Jesus is the peephole that we have into eternity. This is the most accurate, solid grasp we can get on what the rest of our living will be like. The resurrected body of Jesus. Are you seeing it? All right, we got some uh, ground to cover now. You guys ready? So, if the story is, if, if the plan of God is to not throw this world away, but to heal it, to make it whole, if the plan of God is not to pull us to where He is, but for Him to come down and to join us where we are and to make things right, then what is going on in the in-between? Because we know that what Jesus was coming to do was to start the process. He was coming to set things in motion that heaven and earth are on this collision path now. But what about the in-between? So, that leads us to some really kind of troubling passages. So, what we have to understand is this. When we're talking about heaven, there are two different heavens we have to talk about. You guys ready for this? Okay. First heaven we're going to talk about is what I call the present heaven, meaning what the state of heaven is right now. The second heaven, which is what we're going to call the eternal heaven, the future heaven, is what heaven will be forever. And that's what the scriptures call the new heaven and the new earth. If you notice in Isaiah, he says, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And if you go to Revelation 21, at the end of the story... He's talking about, you see, that God is now finishing that promise. He's making a new heaven and new earth, and all of a sudden, a new Jerusalem is coming down onto the earth. Not, not people escaping the earth to New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is coming down to settle here on the earth. And this city of God is going to fill this place. So what that means is, heaven right now is not what heaven will be forever. Right? Ooh, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with it. Okay. Let's go to the Scriptures. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 1. John chapter 14. He, he's trying to comfort his disciples. And uh, here's what he says. He said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You, be, uh, you believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and, and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be there where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. <clears throat> so, here's just understanding where Jesus is going to take his disciples to be with him where he is. But since we know the whole story, we know that Jesus, <clears throat> he was on the earth, 
and then he's, his body is resurrected, and then he's ascended to heaven where he's, he's with the Father waiting to come down to take his throne on the earth. And so we know that the second coming, when Jesus will return, something's going to happen. So when he's talking to his disciples, he's not telling them, I'm taking you to the new heaven and new earth, because that hasn't happened yet. And he's also not telling them he's going to take them to this place, and he's going to bring them back in the second coming. He's telling them, I'm going to take you to the place where I'm going right now. What's very interesting about the Greek word they're used for rooms. When he's talking about rooms, the, the Greek word there is meant with the word sojourner. Sojourner is about a travel, a journey, a spiritual transition place. And so when you open up the Greek of this passage, what he's telling is, I'm, I'll take you to the place I'm going, but the place I'm going is only temporary for you. And if you notice, the same language is used on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, he's about to pass away, and he has the, the uh, thief on the other cross turns him and says, hey, take me with you into your kingdom. He doesn't say, I'll take you with me into my kingdom. He says, you will, be with, you will be with me in paradise. Now, we evangelicals don't want anything to do with the word paradise or purgatory because like, that's all Catholic stuff, right? used to drive me nuts this passage because there's about five or six different places where Jesus used the word paradise. I'd be like, why are you using paradise when you don't use paradise other places? What is he talking about? What we understand in the Scriptures is that this, the present heaven, the way heaven is right now, again, will not be this way forever because the eternal destiny, right? We know that heaven, what heaven is now, is going to merge with what earth is now, Right? We see this in the Scriptures, the new heaven and new earth. There's going to be a, a coming together of these two. And so when we go to the current heaven, to the present heaven, this is a temporary reality, a temporary place. If you would, it's a lodge on your way to, you know, on your way home. It's a, it's a hotel that we pull off on the side of the road. This is even the imagery he talks about, with a house that has all these different rooms in it. We're going to a place to wait until our home is prepared. Here's what it says. Here's the notes we got on that. It says, um, Heaven in its present state serves as a beautiful lodge along the journey to home. This is where our life after death resides. In essence, this gets really tricky here. Christians have one of the most interesting, most complicated understandings of life after death because we don't have just one life after death. This is our first understanding of life after death. Christians believe in two lives after death. The first one, in the present heaven. And so we call this our life after death. This is where we go. Whenever you die, the Apostle Paul said what? To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord, right? So this is where we go when we die. We are present with God in some kind of a soul state where who we really are in our nature is with Him, but we are not resurrected in our bodies yet. The Apostle Paul talks about this all the time. He talks about those who have fallen asleep but have not been resurrected yet. And so the language in the Scriptures is that this, the present heaven is a place where we go, where we are present with God, but we have not yet joined the fullness of being united with Him in our resurrected bodies. And so if you guys want to go in your Bibles, we're going to go to, uh, if you guys want to look that up for yourselves, we have that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19. If you want to do homework on that, it's there. Again, I encourage you guys and all this kind of stuff, write down your questions. There's so much about this that is, is new to us. And uh, what's interesting about the doctrine of heaven is it's very old in the church.
but very new to us. We've had such a, uh, a non-scriptural understanding of heaven for so long, it's going to take us a while to wrestle with the scriptures. So if this place is temporary, we know what's going on here. We know that in, in the present heaven, we are present with God. Heaven presently serves as a place and state where we are present with God, though not bodily, as we await the full union of the new creation. And there in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we see a passage there where he's talking about those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus has not been resurrected, then everyone who's fallen asleep has no hope, meaning everyone who's dead, everyone who's, who's in a place of being present with God but not bodily fully alive yet, then if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then everyone who's died has no hope. There's nothing beyond death for them. But if Jesus has died and he has resurrected, then there's hope for everyone who's died because there is life after life. There is an eternal life that they can have. How you guys doing? Take a breath. Yeah, we're talking about paradise. Amen. You guys are all like, I don't know about this thing. This guy is crazy. I promise you that this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he's talking about heaven. It's just uh, takes some work for us to kind of catch up with him. Here's the next thing about the present heaven. The present heaven is awaiting the resurrection. Those in present heaven have been referred to as asleep in expectation of bodily resurrection and full union with God, man, in the new heaven and new earth. Now, let's move on and talk about the future heaven, meaning <coughs> when we talk about future heaven, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth. What is this union, this place where God has made this eternal dwelling place for us with Him? In this place, again, in Scriptures, is the new heaven and the new earth. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go learn about it. Revelation 21, verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. If you notice, it's going to sound an awful lot uh, just like Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament. This is the second to last chapter in the Bible. This is how everything concludes. This is how God finishes his work of making everything right. And so the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first heaven, first earth. That's presently, okay? That's how things are right now, okay? And when he says passed away, he's not talking about it, it, it wasn't destroyed and thrown away, meaning the image of seeing these things is now gone because these two things are being brought together. The one thing that we have to understand about the language in the Bible is it's that of marriage. From the Garden of Eden all the way to the book of Revelation, it's this idea that these things that were always destined for each other will finally come together. And so what we see here, we see the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Pause right there. To Jews and to their understanding, the sea in the creation story, the sea is the source of all kind of fear, discomfort, evil, and darkness. The sea is, is the place where like sea monsters come from, right? We, in the book of Job, when Job is suffering, his friends are trying to console him. and They're talking about, you know, uh, trying to help him understand that Jesus, that when God talks to him about the sea monsters and who has control over the seas, and, and he says, uh, who's able to tame behemoth and things like that? And God is saying, only I have control over the seas. Only I am the one who's able to control everything that you fear. And so yet, the first thing that, that a Jew or a first century Christian is seeing in this passage is that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sea. There is no source of darkness, evil, fear, pain, or loss. I want to pause right there for a second. Would that line not sound weird to you? He says, I see a new heaven and I see a new earth, and there's no sea. Would you just read right over that? 
I have for years. What that means is, in this place, there's no source of darkness, fear, death, loss. There's nothing that is not tamed by God in this new place that God is going to create for us. There's only this new beautiful creation. There's no sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. There's the imagery of marriage again. Do you see this? The imagery of marriage. Here comes the bride of God, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I hear a loud voice from the throne room saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. Let's pause right there. There's so much imagery happening here. I want to make sure that we, that we don't miss it. The first thing that we see in heaven, okay, the first image of the eternal place we're going is the marriage, the coming together, the union of God and man. In the garden, what was separated? God and man. Through Jesus in heaven, in our eternal home, what's coming together? God and man. The part we're not, we're not seeing here, because we had to skip through some verses, is that there's no longer any temple anymore. The temple was always the place where God and man could meet. It's a place where the separation, where the great divide could be jumped, where God and man would come together again. But in this city, in heaven, there's no temple anymore. And why is that? Because God is going to dwell with His people Himself. The union. Understand, in the Scriptures, the picture for marriage is not just that, you know, the idea of covenant. It's that man and woman were made for each other. Physically even, right? It makes sense. And so, you know, the idea here is that man was made for woman, she was made for him, and that when they come together, it makes something new. And so, when you have union of man and woman, what happens? Life comes out of it, right? In the way it's intended. When all things are right, when man and woman come together, life springs out of it. When two things which were created to be one come together, new life is created out of this union. And so, the first thing that we see that's being created is when God and man come together, what's being created out of it is a city. Are you seeing it? When God and man come back together, it's not just a garden anymore. Because remember, the garden was our dwelling place. It wasn't God's dwelling place. And when God and man come back together, now there's a new place. A city now. It's not a garden anymore. It's a city. It's a place for us to dwell and for Him to dwell. And now there's another image going on here as well. And now, in the same picture of marriage, there's now a marriage of heaven and earth. These two which were always created for each other are coming together. And what's going to come out of it is life. And and what's this? The new heaven and the new earth. These two which are separate things will come together to create one. Are you seeing this? And so when the Apostle Paul, in his epistles he goes, and he talks about the uh, profound mystery of marriage and, and, and of the union of, of Christ and His bride. This is what he's talking about. People have no idea. The reason marriage is, is such a powerful symbol is it's symbolizing the ultimate end of all things. That God and all of His creation would come back together and out of that union would spring life. Because what happened when God and man were separated? Death. Are you seeing it? 
This is a much more rich and beautiful and powerful and comforting image than what most of us have seen. And even myself, it, it's just been so comforting and, and healing and exciting for me to study it out and to pray it out and to really uh, b- begin to get the picture to come into view. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The way things used to be, when things were not right, is now gone. And from now on, everything is made right. Everything is reconciled. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I, and of course this is Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God and they will be my children. So much imagery in this. It's a beautiful picture. Let me show you something real quick. And so what happens here, if you notice, Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha. and the, I'm the beginning. and the end. I'm the one who created everything. Colossians 1. I'm the one who created everything. I'm the one who's in everything. And I'm the one who's over all things. And in me, everything is now made right. And what's, what's powerful about this, this is the picture of what the end of the new creation will look like. But the beginning of this process, where this entire process begins, is in one place. Three days after the cross, the resurrection of his body. He is called the first fruits from among the dead. Meaning he's the first one to walk through death and walk through new creation and to show what it looks like when, when the material, fleeting, failing weakness of this world unites with the eternal, powerful might and splendor and glory of heaven. And when they come together, this is what it looks like. Jesus is what new creation looks like. In me, all things have been made new. And what he does is he steps through it and he shows us this is what is coming. And then the Apostle Paul connects it to us. And then, of course, in in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about how in, in all of us, all of us who have received Christ, we are now what? New creations. Because now the same work that Jesus is doing cosmically in all the universe starts in you. And so we begin to walk out through faith this experience of having all of our hurts and weaknesses and wounds and pains and insecurities as we begin to allow the new creation healing, restoring, making right work of God to just run crazy in us. We begin to experience new creation in us. And now everyone around us begins to see new creation. They begin, just like Jesus, to get a glimpse of what heaven and eternity will be in us. Are you seeing it? You're like, this is week one? What are you talking about, man? I apologize. I just can't stay away from it. It's just, there's so much going on here. We need to see it because if we see it, it changes us. Changes us. And so in heaven, we see the marriage of God and man the marriage of, of, of heaven and earth. And what happens is, when we look at heaven, it's going to look like a few things. Here's the first thing. Heaven is going to be Eden 
like. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. Okay, here's why. Um, the new creation will resemble the first creation. The new heaven and the new earth have the same architect and will mirror both present realities into a future collage. Meaning, the God who made the garden is the same God who's going to make this eternal heaven. Okay? And the same God who made the garden and said it was good is the same God who's going to make this new creation and call it good as well. Okay? It's not, it, it will be familiar, but it will not be the same. And we see that in the body of Jesus. Jesus' body is familiar. He walks, He talks, He eats. You can touch Him, you can feel Him, you can hug Him. He can smell and see and taste and experience. He's fully bodily, but He's also different. He also what? Walks through walls. He also teleports. Okay? He, his body is familiar, but different. Heaven will be Eden-like. It's not going to be the Garden of Eden. It's going to be like it, but different. Jesus, we have to understand too, the heaven is going to be Jesus-like as well. His resurrected body serves as a glimpse and preview of the nature of God's new creation. Meaning, we don't see everything of heaven in what Jesus was like when he was resurrected. But we get the nature of it. We get the feel of it. We get a sense of what everything is going to be like over there. Because Jesus is this walking, talking, tangible example and... and, and, uh, picture of what it's going to be like over there. And so uh, we get the nature of God's new creation work that will leave nothing unchanged or untouched, but yet in a familiar and new fashion. The next thing for heaven, the eternal heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, when these two things join, it's going to be city-like, meaning the culmination of earth and heaven's union is a city. The city replaces the temple. No longer will God and man be confined to meeting within a confined space. The separation between God and His people is over, and He will dwell with them fully forever. Here's the last thing, guys. Heaven is eternal. We don't know what this means. Everything in our world is finite. Everything in our world is fleeting and fading. Uh, A sunrise, it's beautiful and it touches us and it moves us, but it's here and it's gone. A song Uh, a hug, a a memory, an experience, a taste, a smell. These things are real to us, and we cling to them, but they're only temporary. Everything that we know fades and ebbs and ultimately disappears. In heaven, nothing has an end to it. Heaven in its future state is is where our journey home ends. This is where our life after life after death resides. Did you get that? Your life after death is in the present heaven. But your life after life after death. Do you see? Okay, here's where we are now. You step through death. Here's heaven, the present heaven. I'm present with God. I'm, you know, I'm not resurrected in my body. Heaven and earth haven't joined yet. But when that happens, all of a sudden now I start life after that life. So my life after death after that life. Oh, amen. It's an N.T. right saying, by the way. It's beautiful. Um, this is where our life after life after death resides. While the journey home was over, the exploration and enjoyment of home and of family has just begun. Would you stand with me? One thing that's really been uh, encouraging to me in the last few years is 
as I've been studying and meeting people from different uh, walks of Christianity and allowing God to take me places that are just, were just new to me in the scriptures. And one of the places that, that uh, I really just appreciated that God was showing himself to me was in sacraments. You know, we, we call these things sacred things, sacred places. The idea is, just like in the temple of God, the idea was the temple was a place where God and man could meet. But sacraments are places where we get to meet with God as well. And so even though in eternity, whenever we get to heaven, we will be fully present with Him, we know right now we're not. And so there's certain ways that we get to experience God, certain things that get to remind us and help us to just be have our hope restored and our excitement restored. Well, sacraments is one of those. And so communion is this physical, tangible thing that we do. We take this bread, we smell it, we feel it, we taste it, we, we take this, this, this grape juice. <laughs> Everyone's right? Okay. Grape juice, and we take this and we smell it, we taste it. And it's this ability to take things that we can see and touch and feel and connect it to something that we can't yet see. And I never used to understand sacraments at all because to me, what's it matter if my eternity is going to be floating as a jellyfish spirit and everything is like, you know, disembodied and who cares about the body and the world, then why do I need this to connect me to that? I can just get there through prayer. But when I start realizing that this is to prepare me for a place that is physical and tangible and touchable and smellable and tasteable, then it makes sense. Do you see it? I want to encourage everyone this morning to come on up and take communion.